Gresham College presents Educationally Green University Research, Teaching and Campus Greening by Professor Carolyn Roberts, Gresham Professor of the Environment. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and um, thank you for turning out on a cold, uh, a cold evening. I, uh, I also want to uh, just flag up that, uh, that we are recording, we do record these, and Gresham puts these uh, lectures out on the web, so I feel that I should say welcome to those people who are going to watch uh, uh, the lecture at some other time in another place. Um, I, want to, I want to start off by taking us to a, another time and another place, and uh, would anybody like to just comment where is where where is this? Do you know where this is? No. Well, this is this is Bangladesh, and uh, you can see there the, the huge delta into the Indian Ocean. Uh, it's a striking image, and I want to spend just two or three minutes reflecting on on Bangladesh. Uh, I'm talking tonight about universities. I want to just take us to uh, a, a university in Dhaka for a few minutes. Um, Bangladesh, as I'm sure many of you will know, is one of the poorest countries in the world. It has a university system in part established under British colonial rule, but latterly uh, has new players emerging, new private universities. Now, they are very variable in quality, but I'd like to play you an extract of a YouTube video about a particular university and let you make your own judgment. We are trying to offer an education which will give our students the highest level professional or technical skills, but also give them a serious foundation in basic knowledge and a lifelong curiosity to learn. Ultimately, to be a nation, you also need your poets, your philosophers, your scientists. I'm the Vice Chancellor at the University of Liberal Arts, Bangladesh. We want to train up our boys and girls, both as a citizen of Bangladesh and also a citizen of the world. Where we are right now, Panchagor, as part of the course. It's, the course is called Sustainable Development, so we're all here um, doing research and reports for it. When we came here, we didn't realize that we'd be doing this kind of work, but it's been very interesting. We had no idea that uh, just for one grain you know, of food, people work so hard. ULAB has taken this to be a core value of the university studies, that every student should have come in contact with this word, sustainability, what is it actually it is, what does it mean. We can learn things from the GED courses. Those are really good. Too often, learning institutions in the third world become a mailbox. Learning is developed somewhere else and you're just passing it on. ULAB is intent on developing knowledge that is created here and that can be shared by people the world around. Now, I don't know what you think of that, but let's uh, just hear one of the staff there describe the purpose of a university as he sees it. Universities must offer a unique platform for policymakers, academic leaders, researchers, students, and corporate partners to work together to explore innovative solutions for environmental challenges. Now, Dr. Jahir is not very clear in English. He's working in about his fourth or fifth language, actually. Um, but he's talking about the importance of universities offering a platform for debate and for preparing students, or as the video says, to, to, to have that debate, or universities and staff to have that debate. 
Now, in a country with, that's grappling daily with serious environmental problems, flooding, drinking water contamination, uh, sea level rise, um, superimposed onto extreme poverty, the like of which we rarely see in the UK, I think this is, a, if you like, a seedling green story about education for sustainable development. Now, I want to switch over now, contrast that, if you like, to what might go on in a UK university. And um, uh, I'm going to, I want to say that, uh, I'm sorry, this is a, this is a picture of the, uh, of the staff at, at the university in, uh, in, in Dakar who look actually in many ways remarkably like a set of staff in a UK university. Uh, the difference being that the women sit at the back, but uh, that's a, a slightly, I find that slightly uncomfortable, I have to say. But um, anyway, um, how does it work in a UK university? Now, um, the UK leads the world in much of its earth and environmental science research and in the overlapping disciplines of applied geography and built environment. But when it comes to what we might call greening and green initiatives, the situation isn't universally rosy. Um, some green initiatives, despite the strength in the disciplinary areas, have not succeeded in the UK. Uh, the one I would uh, cite would be something called regional centres of expertise in education for sustainable development. And I doubt there's anybody here or indeed listening on the web who's ever heard of them. Uh, and I have to say, I wrote an application for the UK to, be, to have one of these things, which, which succeeded, and uh, the, the whole initiative hasn't gained much recognition in, in the UK. What I want to do tonight is just to explore how UK universities have approached environmental challenges in their teaching, their research, and what I would describe in a way that's not intended to be pejorative, their housekeeping practices. And I want to start, really, by seeing what we can learn from the story of one such institution. I want to call it, I'm going to call it the Uni University of Borsetshire. And for those of you who, like me, are Archers fans, you'll position that immediately. This is a, an English university. It's offered higher education courses since the 19th century. But it only achieved a university title sometime after 1992. And like many universities today, um, it would call itself, I suppose, a teaching-led, research-informed university. Essentially, uh, a liberal arts college, like uh, the university uh, in, in Bangladesh there, but uh, a liberal arts college plus. Um, this particular university did have a, a track record of teaching in environmental disciplines and it had a small research unit broadly in the same area as well. And in terms of its position in relation to its housekeeping, it's operated in historic and modern buildings, some of which, at least 25 years ago, when I'm going to start my story, were in a rather poor state. Now, from the early 1990s onwards, the staff in this particular university, and this is not untypical of many other institutions in the UK, some of both the academic and the support staff became interested in, environment, uh, in addressing emerging, rather abstract environmental themes through some kind of action. And the early activity is very poorly documented, and of course we know that history is often veiled, if not overwritten. But by 1991, 
the institution had established an environmental management committee, drawn up a set of policies and strategies that had been approved uh, by the, the leader of the college and started a number of initiatives. You can probably imagine the sort of things that were going on in the, in the 1990s. There were pushes on recycling, uh, there were a cycling week, there were energy audits and there was some investment in the, in the building stock to render them more efficient. And there were investigations as well, some of which were undertaken by students with staff supervision, sometimes as part of their courses. And the university itself had a shot at delivering some elements of educational, uh, education for sustainable development training to academic staff so that they could incorporate it into their teaching. And uh, it also audited its, uh, its activity. It audited its energy consumption, its water consumption and so on, drawing on students to help and using a model developed by one of the leading local authorities in this area, Kirklees Borough Council. Alongside that, it released media messages, of course. It was trying to position itself at the cutting edge of activity. Uh, despite the elements of hype, and I think there was a certain amount of hype in what was going on, uh, and what looks today to be things which are curiously amateur. I don't think we'd probably expect a university today to be running cycling week uh, with senior members of the university seen tottering along uh, tracks within the campus when patently they hadn't ridden a bicycle for, for years, but that was what was going on. Um, despite all that, there was, I think, an emerging environmental and sustainability commitment, and it was expressed in the university vision and back, uh, backed by the Vice-Chancellor. And by the end of that decade, by the end of the 1990s, Borsetshire had started to receive awards for its work. So in 1997, it was uh, uh, recognised as a trailblazer. Uh, and then um, other awards followed as well. These are uh, a decade later, it got a series of awards. And I'll touch on one of those, uh, or one or two of those in, in a minute. Um, I have to say, though, that a dean at the time, one of the deans at the time, remarked in print, actually, that it didn't seem that they were a trailblazer to him, uh, more as if the university was groping its way forwards and sometimes falling back, and mainly really learning from the mistakes it had made. The journey, in his view, the journey was the thing rather than the end point, greenness, as we might say. Now, in this particular instance, and again, this is not atypical of other institutions, the activity overlapped with the push for what was a, a very elusive university title. Many of you, if you're at all familiar with universities, will recall that back in the early 1990s, many of our current universities were operating as polytechnics or colleges of higher education. That um, influenced things in a number of ways. I'm sorry, I was just going to illustrate the, uh, the mission statement there, or the, the vision uh, uh, in, in 2006. You can see there, by 2006, it had a statement about diversity, sustainability, and social justice appearing in the overall strategy uh, for the institution. Um, and uh, again there, it's in the, uh, that was the vision statement. This is the mission statement, an approach to social responsibility, again reflecting its commitment to sustainability. 
Okay, so what did it do? What did it do? Well, I mentioned some of these things already. Um, what I didn't say during the during the, uh, uh, the push for a university title, but was that there was a lot of anxiety. Uh, cartoons very dangerous things these days, as we know. Uh, I do like this one, though, because I think it sums up very nicely the attitudes of many senior managers in university towards the academic staff. Uh, some of the activities of the members of staff le left me feeling slightly uneasy. Um, the problem with many universities, as they approached the move to becoming a university, they were being audited by external agencies, in particular the, the, the UK Quality Assurance Agency. And universities were being asked to set down in their policies exactly what they were doing and then to audit it. And they became very concerned that if specific uh, re requirements, for example, to have education for sustainability development available to every student, that when they were audited, something would be found to be lacking. A member of staff perhaps might not do it. They might, uh, uh, they, they, even if there were constant reminders to staff to do X and Y, they might not do it. And this might compromise the uh, aspirations of the university to be rewarded uh, by achieving this elusive university title. And I have to say, in my experience, when you have regulations that say things about the curriculum, uh, academic social scientists in particular are much more inclined to question the basis of the instruction rather than to obey it. That's what university staff do. They say why rather than yes. So in this particular university in Borsetshire, uh, the early commitment to what was starting to be called Education for Sustainable Development disappeared for several years during this move to becoming a university. And then it resurfaced in the mid-2000s. And at that time, uh, another opportunity arose, uh, a risk and an opportunity. And this is characteristic, I think, of some of the serendipitous things which happen uh, in any story of institutional change. University decided to take the risk to put its head above a metaphorical parapet by applying for certification through ISO 14001. Now, this is the environmental management system. And uh, at the time, no university in the UK had ever achieved ISO 14001. So this was quite a big deal. Um, many universities uh, are, of course, risk-averse, and certainly were then, but there seemed to be an opportunity for Borsetshire to carve out a little bit of territory here with a distinctive mission that just might attract students. Um, now, for those of you who, uh, who, like me, are not very mentally attuned to the detail required for in, in auditing of any sort, um, I can tell you that this sort of task is very challenging, but Borsetshire was successful. Despite the, the ructions that were created by the estates uh, in the estates department, uh, who, didn't, who weren't at all keen on this, um, the ISO 14001 framework was then in place after the success, and that was the mechanism for ensuring regular progress checks, rather than these unstructured initiatives that had taken place in, in earlier years, the cycling week, the, art, uh, the environmental art exhibition, and so on. So the university was now 
effectively had required itself regularly to monitor and improve its environmental performance, and by and large, it did. So, um, taking risks and dealing with the unexpected, I couldn't resist putting this in, because some of you know I have an interest in rivers. Um, there was a risk, big risk, but in this particular instance, uh, it, it, it came off. So by 2006, the momentum was strong, the institution was beginning to be noted externally for its work, and such that a new vice-chancellor uh, who arrived talked about uh, sustainability now being embedded in the DNA and permeating all aspects of the, of the business. So the new, this new green species with, DNA in its, uh, uh, with greenness in its DNA had seemingly evolved. Now, it's possible to think about change in any organisation as a process that can be brought about using one of a number of strategies. And I would like to invite you to reflect on this from your own experience as a member of a group in, say, a business or a voluntary body or a professional body. How do you get change in an institution? I offer you a number of models for this, and um, these are drawn from all sorts of areas. I could have actually drawn on hundreds. There are hundreds of models of institutional change. But here's one of them. Uh, this is based on some work by Hopkins in 2002. And he talks about uh, what you need to do is initiation, uh, implementation, and institutionalization. That's the model of change. So you initiate, you implement, you institutionalize. And there's, there's a few subheadings there suggesting broadly what you might want to do within those things. And if you do that, you'll get change, apparently. Um, Here's, here's another one, and you'll note that alliteration is a common feature of these, uh, of these models. This one's got, I think, six or seven S's. Uh, staff, style, system, strategy, structure, skills, and superordinate goals. These are not in any particular order, but they're, in this case, they're things you need to address, things you need to think about to get change. Here's a graphical one. I'm sure many of you have seen something like this before, a model of change where you get... Uh, some kind of perturbation, uh, some collapse of the system, there's resistance, there's chaos, uh, and then hopefully some transforming idea that integrates things, pulls it back, evolves it to a new state which is somehow better, a new status quo. I hope you're keeping in mind here your own organisations, whether it's the, I reflect on my own experience with the local PTA actually in this, in this context. It was a, a remarkably long time in chaos, I have to say. Um, finally, uh, some of us who are perhaps more psychologically inclined or sociologically inclined might be familiar with models of uh, institutional change that are based around the idea of appreciative inquiry. Uh, so it says we appreciate what we have, we envision, we dialogue, it's an American thing, we dialogue, we talk and we innovate to something new in order to get the, uh, achieve the required change. It all sounds so simple. And indeed, uh, Trowler and colleagues have grouped change models into a number of different sets. Um, what, what we've been talking about uh, is, is some of these, uh, the technical, rational, 
approach. It's all very logical, very straightforward, very structured. Uh, there's ones that to do with resource allocation. If you invest in some parts of your organisation and disinvest in others, the change will emerge. Um, and there's ones that say talk about diffusion. You plant an idea and it diffuses somehow to others, uh, and so on. And then at the end, he talks about models using complexity. Now, any of these models might be used retrospectively to describe change in an organisation, whether it's yours, your PTA, your professional body, or whatever, uh, after the event. And I suspect that, in fact, most of these models are used after the event to try and describe what, what might have happened, rather than what one might do. Uh, and that's what I'm going to just do myself now. I'm going to actually draw on a very uh, simple uh, model, something called Cotter's Eight Stages of change. If any of you are familiar with this, there's a rather nice book about penguins associated with this one. Uh, it's available for about 48 pence on the web, as I discovered, because there are so many books on institutional change that the value uh, uh, has, uh, has reduced. But um, here we see Cotter's eight stages of change. Now, this is a bit more structured in terms of what you do, but it's still a simple model. It describes a, a, a set of stages that you might go through. Now, I want to just express it in a different way. I really like this one, this way of expressing it. This is a, a metaphor. This is St. John Climacus's Ladder of Dis Divine Ascent. It's the journey to heaven. And um, uh, in this case, greenness, perhaps. And it, there are many challenging steps. And what you can see on the screen here is the, the monks on the ladder and the demons trying to pull them off. And the mouth of Hades at the bottom there, swallowing up the ones who've fallen off, who've fallen by the wayside. And there's people, some people down there on earth praying for those on the ladder. And right at the top, we have, uh, we have Christ waiting for the successful ones to enter the Holy Kingdom, okay, to reach this new state. So that's the journey that change agents face in this particular model. Now, some of Cotter's descriptors of the steps of change can be identified in Borsitschir's story. I'm not going to go through all of them. There were all sorts of things that one might recognise after the event. Uh, talking about, for example, is one of them, empowering broad-based action. How do you go about doing that? Uh, and how do you um, embed change into the institution? How do you follow it up afterwards? Um, how do you consolidate and produce more change? And so on. So these are, this is a simple model of change. Um, staff, uh, there were some things which were uh, important uh, and, and others not. Many institutions, in fact, many UK universities have gone through the same process. Um, let me give you an example. Cardiff University, for example, uh, in 2002, they were talking about local transport providers. They talked with the local transport provider, had initiative on transport, then they embedded it in their systems by requiring staff to use bus services and walk and so on. And it succeeded, apparently. Um, there's a, a sort of later one, I put it as a reluctant participant, uh, Loughborough University, who responded principally very late on to a, to a student-led campaign and started moving through their process, the metaphorical ascent to heaven. 
Now, there's lots of examples of this reported in the literature, both as stories of success and, in some cases, with highly complex analyses of the key drivers behind the changes. And what I would say to you, really, is that Borsetshire perhaps had moved just a little earlier than most of the other institutions. Now, there were some things which predisposed it to a rather... Uh, to, as, as a rather unlikely winner, if you like, in the, in the race for greenness. There was a strong guiding coalition. Um, let's go back to that. Uh, there was a sense of urgency. Uh, there was vision and strategy development. Um, there was some opportunity to experiment across the different campuses in sort of social laboratories. Um, Conversely, other things were very un proved very unimportant, actually, in Borsetshire. Very little money was invested. Um, there wasn't the money to do it, and that was, again, a situation common in many universities at the time. There was very little technology deployed. There weren't technological solutions. Um, there was only a part-time appointment to manage the thing, and it was run alongside and part of health and safety. I should put the... Um, uh, raise some fears in some people probably and, and nobody was offered uh, financial inducements for compliance nor promotions um, and so those things were not important and equally other things came and went um, voluntary student groups for example there were particular enthusiasms in particular years and students did something and staff did something but interest waxed and waned and the quality assurance systems of the institution, as I suggested earlier, uh, varied as well from being very strongly prescriptive, you have to do this, through to, no, you can do it if you want to. Okay, so lots of change, uh, lo lots of examples there of things that both supported change and really had very little influence, or in some cases negative influence. Now, change, of course, is not linear as... Cotter implies. It's very complex. It's, it's circular. It really can't, in fact, in my opinion, be steered to any significant degree. Um, some changes occur very, very rapidly. Uh, the early stages at, at Borsetshire happened within a few months, actually. Things started to happen. Other things took very much longer, and there wasn't that gradual ascent to heaven, as many of the models suggest. Equally, serendipity played an important role. Some things just happened to be available and uh, novel opportunities and risks came. Uh, equally, new goals were set, even though the initial goals that had been described had not been achieved. So the pathway was much more meandering uh, and up and down than, than is uh, illustrated on here. Okay. Now... Um, we could say that those things, those are all typical of the wicked problems, which I talked about in previous uh, lectures and will refer to, uh, refer to again. Urgent problems with lots of different stakeholders, with multiple languages, ideas and goals, and complementary and competing aspirations, where what you do in one place at one time uh, affects something somewhere else. For those of you who are unfamiliar with this concept, I would refer you to Rittle and Weber's work in the 1970s. Okay, so we have 
institutions changing, we have models of how that might happen, what we might do to support it. What I want to turn my attention to now is, does it actually matter? Does it make any difference? Well, if nothing else, uh, three million people work and study in UK universities. Uh, UK universities occupy 9% of all the office space in the UK, and they're very key parts of the economy, certainly in relation to their overseas student recruitment. Um, beyond that, the organisations that fund universities, the Higher Education Funding Council for England, in, in, uh, in England, says that it matters. It tells institutions now that they need to be doing this, and in the past it has rewarded or penalised financially those who didn't comply. And crucially, I think, students think it matters. Now, there's a National Union of Student Study has confirmed this for several years running. I want to uh, just play... Well, the role of universities is in incredibly important uh, in sustainable development and sustainability. There's a UNESCO statistic that less than 3% of the world's population have gone to university, but 80% of the world's leaders have been to university. So a great way of um, uh, changing things in society is to embed it into tertiary education. At the moment, so many students uh, come out with uh, what is technically a degree that will get them a job, but actually, socially, uh, isn't of a great use to society. Well, the NUS is in, involved in uh, all sorts of environmental issues as a core part of what we do. We've done that because students are really worried about uh, things like climate change. We working with the Department for Energy and Climate Change survey students every year, and we know that students are at least as worried as the general public, if not more so. And when you unpack that, firstly, it's because they're worried about things like climate change, but secondly, it's because they see it as an opportunity. Um, there's nearly a, a million unemployed young people in this country at the moment, and uh, knowing a bit about climate change or sustainability or anything to do with sustainable development will maybe, maybe to help them get their foot on the careers ladder and get them their first job. Okay, if we just look at the National Union of Students survey, this is the most recent one in 2014, uh, and it, one of the things it did was uh, it asked to what extent students agreed that universities should be obliged to develop students' social and environmental skills as part of the course. Uh, and you'll see there's a very consistent picture there, I can't do the arithmetic, but it's something like 70% of all students think that they should be obliged to teach that as part of the course. That's a pretty radical suggestion, actually, for most British universities, with their strong traditions of uh, academic freedom. There's uh, another one here that says, uh, there's another question that was asked in the survey, do you personally agree with the statement that sustainable development is something that I would like to learn more about? And again, you say 61, slightly more, uh, slightly less than, say, uh, it should be part of the course, say they personally would want to have it as part of their course. So I think we can say that this is an important matter for students uh, and for other agencies as well. Now, I want to turn my attention to something called the Green League Tables uh, and just look at the extent to which institutions have apparently made this progress towards the, the great vault in the, of greenness in the sky. Um, this is, uh, the Green League was something that was established by uh, a student-led campaigning organisation called People and Planet, which started in Oxford in 1969. 
They published the first Green League tables in 2007. There were some things before that. But they still claim to be the only comprehensive and independent ranking of universities, UK universities, in terms of their environmental and latterly their ethical performance. So it's something of a benchmark. And initially it started off with uh, really in information about university policies and management arrangements. So it said things like how many staff have you got um, who are uh, involved in environmental management and do you have a policy on it? Uh, which those things are really not measures of output or impact, actually. They're measures of uh, uh, what you're putting into it, not what you're getting out of it. But then in subsequent years, it began to include other information about the actual performance of university grounds and buildings. So we see, if we look at this over the years, and this is the 2007 first-class performance, but if you summarise all the information for all the classes... Um, that, for example, the use of renewable energy in universities has increased from about 12% in 2007 to about 75% today, which is actually rather remarkable. Um, now, each institution has a calculated index, and um, this is the, the, uh, the uh, summary, uh, or the top part of the tabulation, for 2007, using the indicator that as calculated today. Um, and you can see there the top few institutions. Uh, and I'm going to show you in a minute the, the figures for 2014. Um, but this original league, the 2011 league, included 117 institutions. And they got the data for this by interrogating the web, largely. So it was an involuntary thing. Most institutions had some data on the web, and it was included in the analysis. And then the, 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 uh, some scores were calculated, and that gave you the top, uh, the top group, which were given first-class marks. Now, um, uh, I think there, there's some interesting, uh, interesting elements to this. Uh, one major problem is that, the, um, as I said, the, uh, particularly latterly, uh, participation is effectively voluntary, and some institutions choose not to participate. But actually, this last year of publication in 2013, 143 institutions participated, which is a very large number. It's a clear um, majority of, uh, of universities and one or two FE colleges as well. There will, it will be fewer in 2014's tabulations because there's been a big argument about it. Um, of course, this is not unexpected. Um, each year the league runs, there is protest about organisations that have taken a tumble. Uh, and they usually say things like, it's the nature of the calculations is wrong, or the, uh, uh, the opposition, uh, or the competitors, if you like, uh, have provided dubious data uh, the data's wrong or there's bits missing and so on. I actually have to say, I think if you compared that to uh, the way students would describe being assessed in finals by saying, well, I wasn't quite ready or I haven't done all the data or the book wasn't in the library, you'd see certain parallels there. So I would say universities probably ought to be quite familiar with that as an approach. Um, saying we didn't know what the questions would be is not really a, 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 an answer. However, um, if we look at the characteristics of this table, the top, 
I haven't, I'll spare the blushes of the ones who were, uh, or most of the blushes of the ones who were rated as third class or fails, but you can see the top five institutions, Leeds Met, Plymouth, Hertfordshire, Glamorgan and, and Gloucestershire, um, are all new universities who'd gone through this transition in the 1990s or later. Uh, just for your information, Cambridge came in eighth and Oxford 27th. Um, now, that wasn't very comfortable for those institutions, of course. And by 2013, uh, the situation uh, is even more polarised. Um, the top five were somewhat similar. Manchester Met, Plymouth, Gloucestershire, Worcester and Brighton. Cambridge had dropped into in obscurity at 113th. Uh, and indeed, only of the only four of the 43 institutions that got first-class grades were from the prestigious ranks of the Russell Group, four out of 43. Um, actually, for information, it was Bristol, Exeter, LSE, and Newcastle, and none of them were in the top ten. So it created a lot of upset. Of course, it's not very, uh, it's not very common for Oxford University to be ranked 125 places below Oxford Brooks um, and, uh, and, and with a fail grade. Oxford Brooks got a seventh, and, uh, and, and actually for Oxford, and I have to say this as somebody with an association with Oxford myself, um, Cambridge, whereas Oxford got a fail, Cambridge scraped a third. Um, so, um, so the modern universities are competing effectively, and they don't share these Green League top-ranked institutions. They don't share common locations in green and leafy suburbs, or they don't share what I might call metropolitan funkiness. Um, what they do share is a very strong, centralised managerial culture. Back in 1992, as I said in the case of our story of Borsetshire, their concern was to satisfy the UK Quality Assurance Agency of their ability to maintain standards. Um, so when they were told what to do, by and large, they did what they were told. And um, in addition, I think... Many of them had stronger links with their host communities. Many of them had been polytechnics with links with local employers and so on. So um, the new universities were nervous at violating the regulations for established by central government for standards. Academic staff were more used to being told what to teach and when to do it, um, whereas their Ivy League counterparts were much more fiercely def defendant, uh, defensive of academic freedom and much more likely to resist demands for compliance. Okay, now it's a gross, uh, and what I'm talking about here is grossly generalised, of course. Um, those community links, though, which underpin uh, many aspects of our understanding of sustainability, um, are very commonly reflected in the mission statements of the so-called modern universities. If we looked, as I did uh, in the late 20th century, at Liverpool University's mission statement, for example, an older university, it centred around the production of Nobel laureates, whereas the local modern equivalent was talking about its links with local businesses. So universities the modern university is much more closely linked through sandwich courses, through placements for work experience and so on, with, uh, with their local communities. And it wasn't very difficult for them to develop that further into areas of community engagement, 
for staff, for, stu uh, for students, and in some cases for staff. Now, it begs a bigger question, this, about the purpose of education. And I've just highlighted here uh, Einstein's approach to this, which I think is, is rather good. Um, it talks about the training of independently acting and thinking individuals who, however, see in the service of the community their highest life problem. There's no reflection of research in that, which is interesting, I think. Um, I want to play you some very short extracts of individuals talking about their conception of universities today. So the role of modern universities is to equip students with the skills and the knowledge to challenge and engage with ethical and sustainable practices in all aspects of their academic career and the ways in which things are applied in uh, their working life and environments. I think the role of universities within the, the opportunity to address environmental challenges is uh, at one level bringing new research uh, opportunities and, and technology opportunities to industry but also and very importantly uh, imparting new knowledge and new strategy and new thinking to graduates and postgraduates who then become involved in those industries. Universities have utterly critical and I would say unique role in bringing science to everyone. They have not just an opportunity but a responsibility and to ensure that every graduate leaves with a basic scientific understanding but of course then we do need the specialists to be leading scientific-based solutions to our, uh, our problems, not just our environmental problems, that recognising you can't just solve scientific problems in isolation. There are economic and social perspectives that have to be addressed. That is a big challenge to our universities. I think many universities are up for the challenge, but it's not an easy thing. You know, we've had hundreds of years of scientific research in a sort of a relatively narrow disciplinary perspective. And I, I think our structure has become quite siloed. And, and I, I think it's difficult for universities to step back and, and shake it all up. I think universities can be seen as having a twofold role. One is to create a, or develop a, a basic level of awareness and understanding of environmental issues so that uh, society broadly has a, an understanding of these issues which are increasing in character so that um, at a personal, societal and policy level we can make the right decisions. Beyond that, uh, we need a, a cadre of people with sufficient expertise to address uh, the issues at a more technical level. I think universities have a, a really important three roles, really. One is in terms of offering opportunities for interdisciplinary research. I think universities are and should be interdisciplinary. They also have a, a remit, I think, in responsibility to their own local areas. So they should be working, and Oxford and Oxfordshire and the Chilterns, for instance, are a really good area to be working in to see how these things can work in practice. And then they have a role to educate uh, the next generation of both researchers and of people going into practice through professions such as planning, um, real estate management, architecture, as well as arts and ecology. So, those people have flagged up a number of potential roles for universities, including teaching, research, both community engagement, 
innovation. Um, least one person talks about leadership. Um, I'd like you to just listen to this. Governments one, are constrained by elections. It's difficult for a government to do something that's unpopular. Universities don't have that constraint. A central role of universities in society is to say the un unthinkable, to challenge people to say unpopular things that just happen to be inconvenient but true. Universities also have a central role in education. It's often said that graduates do more harm to the planet than anybody. Universities need to turn that around so that our graduates come out with both knowledge about the challenges the planet faces, but also with the practical skills to get out there and do something to make a difference, so that they live their lives in a way that is more sustainable. Okay, so what we hear there is somebody from an old university saying universities also have a role in saying the unsayable uh, alongside their educational role. Now, everybody, I think, almost everybody, mentions research. And for many people, that is the raison d'etre of universities. We do have, in the UK, world-leading environmental research. I touched on this earlier, and I want to reiterate it. I, I just pulled in three... Um, examples here. Uh, we have the Met Office uh, weather and climate modelling um, uh, research. The Met Office, linked with universities, actually, produces some of the most powerful science in the world. Uh, and uh, there are equally uh, other analyses following on from that, looking at the social uh, and economic um, uh, implications of some of that research on, on climate change. And uh, I would uh, sort of exhort you to, to contemplate that, despite the fact that today's Daily Telegraph was trumpeting the fact that climate scientists are now saying they got it wrong uh, about the extent of climate change, which, in my view, is a, a misconception about the way in which scientific research evolves. But notwithstanding their view... Um, the Met Office does very good environmental science. We also have, uh, here's another example of environmental science. This is looking at um, change in soils in East Anglia as a result of drainage. And um, uh, you'll see here um, monitoring equipment, which is looking at reflectance characteristics of soils, actually. It's from the University of Leicester. Um, some of our research that we're doing in the department is focusing on the impact that uh, agricultural use of Fenland soils, these are peat soils, uh, is having on greenhouse gas emissions. We're carrying out research in East Anglia, which has a, a very large area of land under agricultural production, but on these carbon-rich soils. And what we want to do is to uh, establish how, perhaps by, by changing uh, the way in which the land is managed, we could reduce uh, the carbon footprint of the foodstuffs. This research is innovative, perhaps surprisingly, because we're one of the first teams to actually ever investigate uh, the impact of agriculture on lowland peat soils uh, in the whole of the UK, actually. And this type of research is also quite new, even in other parts of Europe, which also have large areas of lowland uh, peatlands being used for crop production. I should emphasise that these are just examples of world-leading research. 
I want to offer you one more. I don't have a, a, a SAM file for it, but just a, just a different kind of example. This is an example of a spin-out company from the University of Nottingham. Uh, it's a company now called Azotic um, Technologies, and it's based on 20 years of research, very long timescale for research, uh, around nitrogen-fixing bacteria, which are put, being put onto seed coatings. The bacteria are taken up into the plant, into every cell in the plant, and they enable the plant to act rather like a, a, a legume, taking nitrogen from the air, rather than requiring high levels of nitrogenous fertilisers. And clearly, that's a very, uh, potentially, that's a world-beating technology, really likely to affect um, the economic uh, characteristics of agriculture right across the world. Um, they're doing the, the, the first analyses of, of trials at the moment, in fact. So, uh, we have many examples of world-beating research. Now, does that matter? What, what's the point uh, about that? Underpinning all of the decisions that the water sector and the environmental sector take has to be robust science. You shouldn't be doing anything unless you've got evidence. My fundamental principles is you only make decisions when you've got hard evidence. You get evidence from good science. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a quaint phrase, good science, but unless you really do good science, you won't get good evidence. And if you haven't got good evidence, you'll have bad decisions. One of the problems with good science is it actually takes time. Um, and I think the industry is driven to, to, to make decisions too quickly. They've got profits to, to make. They've got bottom lines to achieve. They're in a five-year cycle. A good bit of research could take 10 years to collect the evidence. I'll give you another one. I yeah. think one of the most impactful pieces of work that the Centre for Ecology and Hydrology has carried out, if we look back through recent decades, was to develop the first flood risk maps for the UK, which presented in a very simple way the areas which were vulnerable and that that was made available both to policymakers and was also a very simple vehicle for the public to understand the levels of risk. And I think that that has been impactful and has a number of follow-on stages where these maps have got been made more sophisticated, both by CEH and, and many other organisations. I mean, we have a very good track record in this country of scientific contributions to understanding environmental problems. But I do see a, a serious issue in the sense that state-funded scientific research has dramatically reduced in recent years, despite the fact that the funding councils continue to flourish. And by that I mean that privatisation of many industries has led to the reduction of their research. Um, the Central Electricity Generating Board, for example, had major research laboratories in Leatherhead. And when they were privatised, when the company was privatised, those laboratories closed. So that research, in terms of electricity supply distribution and environmental uh, implications of it, went. And I don't know where it's gone. I suspect we're not doing it. Where the research is now, I don't know. I suspect it's abroad, if it's uh, at all. And that would explain, of course, why so many of our infrastructure development projects are, in fact, done by foreign companies. So Ron Cook there is making a point about research... Uh, and, and indeed the earlier a couple of speakers they were making points about 
research, some research needing to be in universities, needing to be long-term, being needed by the industrial sector for the health of our economy. Now, I want to uh, conclude my talk by making an important point about the links between university research and greenness in our universities. We have research treasures here. We've seen we have research treasures, universally recognised, I think, by the speakers here. In my opinion, those research treasures should be the source of inspiration to those people who are seeking to green their universities and to improve their environmental performances. But when we look at that in a structured way, when we analyse the relevant information, that link is just not present. Now, some of you will be aware that in the last uh, couple of weeks, the Research Excellence Framework was published for British universities, which is an analysis of uh, peer-reviewed um, uh, peer indicators, if you like, of the quality uh, and impact of research in all those departments that submitted. It was a massive, uh, uh, it's a massive exercise, enormously costly exercise. I've just taken a couple of bits of data here, uh, and what you see on the graph here is the, uh, on the bottom axis there, it's the People and Planet Green League ratings, the rankings, where you've got on the right-hand side one, or zero actually there, but rankings from one. So on the right-hand side of the diagram, you've got those institutions which appeared at the top of the Green League <coughs> tables, and on the left, you've got those that appeared at the bottom, and on the vertical axis, you've got the research excellence framework rankings for, actually it should be, uh, uh, where it says Earth and Environmental Sciences, um, that's more or less the title. So again, you've got the top ranked research departments at the top and the lower ranked ones at the bottom. Now, if any of you can see any association between those two things, you're doing better than I am. What it's telling us is that there is actually no relationship at all between having the expertise in environmental matters within the institution and actually doing something with it to further the cause of the institution. There are, di there are different data sets. There's another one here, which uh, in this case the people and planet ranking is up the side, and there's a measure of research power, um, which is a multiple, a multiple index re reflecting the quality of the impact and how many people are doing it. Uh, in, in research terms, and there's really no relationship there either. Now, so what we're saying then, just to reiterate, the, re the performance of institutions in the research excellence framework is not reflected in the performance in the green league tables. There's no association at all, and as far as I can see, any um, analysis of any of the data shows the same thing. And the net effect of that, in my view, diminishes our efforts to address environmental challenges. It's one of the many disconnects, the many communication failures that beset us in terms of relationships between disciplines, between universities and businesses, and so on. I talked about that in my last talk, drawing on the work of Nancy Roberts. I talked about it in the context of wicked problems, but I want just to play you one last, uh, one last uh, person talking about this and about disconnects. Universities have got a key part to play in the technological advancement and also the scientific advancement. Most industry in the world is focused upon profits that will be generated in a forward business plan which is no more than three years in advance of where we are now. We need 
to be addressing challenges which are a little bit further away than that. We need to start to have solutions to the problems of 2020 being worked on right now. A lot of industries in the UK don't think that universities provide anything more than new starters. They don't think about the science and technology that the universities have developed, could develop and could move forward. Most businesses are so risk-averse, they can't think about how they could operate with a university. We've got issues in the UK. At the moment, there's a vicious circle where universities are not serving industry as well as they need to. Industry is not employing universities as much as they need to. The people who are educated are not being educated in cutting-edge technologies and education is not providing the graduates or the new entrants that industry needs. And our very old-fashioned way of looking at universities and three-year or longer degrees doesn't necessarily serve industry very well. Okay, I'm going to leave you with, with this slide, which is the one I um, put in my last talk, which is really talking about the need for collaboration. We've heard there um, Chris Woods capturing the disconnect between universities and businesses. My analysis suggests those disconnect within universities. Um, next, in my next talk, I'm going to be looking at um, the role of professional bodies in mediating some of these relationships. But I think in order to move forward positively to the next step of evolution, the next step up that ladder towards the heavenly uh, position of, of uh, a better environmental performance, I think what we need to do is perhaps not emphasise the science, uh, or indeed perhaps the teaching, but the matter of communications. Uh, and we need to do that proactively and urgently. Thank you. For all information, please go to gresham.ac.uk.